Pat, take us back to those uh, early days. You're a student. I remember a picture of you on a cover of an album uh, on Dot Records. You're still going to college, and yet you're uh, a recording star. <laughs> Was this because of Randy Wood's Dot Records? How did it get started? Sure. In fact, uh, he really started his label with, some, with four young collegians named the Hilltoppers. Right. And they were guys that, they were just college kids, and they got together, formed a group, and they, they met Randy Wood, who had a record shop, and they said, Randy, we, you know, we'd like to make records. He formed a label, Dot. I don't know where he came up with that name, but uh, it was a good name, a simple name, and the Hilltoppers and the Fontaine Sisters and Johnny Maddox and others um, became recording stars. And then I came along after appearing on the Arthur Godfrey Talent Scout show, and I was in, in school. I was at North Texas State. Randy had me come to Chicago. I recorded Two Hearts, Two Kisses, and then, and then sent me on the most grueling tour I've ever been on, 18 or 20 cities in 18 days. And I went to see every radio station. I went to, I went to see every rack jobber, every one-stop record distributor. I went even to stores and, and met buyers in, in department stores. <laughs> Randy had me covering the waterfront to promote that first record because there were other people that had covered that song by the Charms. It was the original song, exactly. Two Hearts, Two Kisses, was on the Dutone label. And Frank Sinatra recorded it, Doris Day recorded it, the Lancers, and a whole bunch of artists. So Randy figured, Pat, nobody knows Pat Boone except from a talent show on TV. I'm gonna send him to every city. He's gonna be on every local TV show. He's gonna go to every radio station, meet every disc jockey, which I did wore me completely out, but at the end of the 20 days or 18 days, mine was the record, and it became a top 10 and eventually a million seller. A lot simpler times, Pat, as you and I have discussed many times, uh, when you could go to a radio station in the, uh, in the movie about Loretta Lynn's life story. Uh, most of that took place in north, uh, western uh, Washington here, just below uh, where we are, uh, where she went with her husband to the radio stations, oh, and they, yeah. would, they would give a listen to a record. Nowadays, of course, they've got it all in computers. Yeah. It's tougher, isn't it? If you walk in a radio station, you may not even see the disc jockey. He may be on tape, too. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, uh, it's, it's a totally different time in most, uh, and, and in a situation in most uh, cases, most parts of the world, where the, the local disc jockey may not choose what he plays. That's right. A programmer somewhere in some other city chooses because they've got all this uh, computerized information on what people supposedly want to hear and what they'll stay listening to and age groups they want to reach and and so the the opportunity for a group or an artist like Robin Luke who made a record in his in his Susie garage Darlin, with Susie Darlin with his dad playing makeshift drums pencils in his pocket on a list of home recorder and it was a million selling record that day uh, apparently is over yeah I think so Let's talk about those, those innocent times, because they, they truly were, uh, especially how shy Elvis was. You and I have shared this before, but let's share it with the audience, how, how really shy this man was. Tell us that story. Well, we met in, uh, in Cleveland. The number one disc jockey in the world, I guess, at that time was Bill Randall of WERE, and, and when he picked a song or an artist to be a hit or a star, uh, it almost always happened, because he not only had a great ear, but if he pronounced it, everybody just assumed what well, it's going to happen. You know, they fell in line. So he had been very good to me in my first records, Two Hearts, Two Kisses, Ain't That a Shame, uh, were hits. I came in to do a, 
uh, a record hop in Cleveland for Bill Randall. It came out of came from New York, and when he picked me up at the airport, he said, "I'm I'm, I'm bringing a new kid up from Shreveport, Louisiana, tonight. He's going to be on the show. I think he's going to be a big star." I said, "Who's that?" He said, "A kid named Elvis Presley." I said, "Elvis Presley, I." I heard a couple of his records on, on the country jukebox out in Texas. He's a hillbilly. How do you think he can be a star? You know, because country right. music was not crossing over into pop. And this new thing called rock and roll. And, and Bill just smiled in that knowing way. And he said, well, RCA just bought his contract from Sam Phillips in Sun Records in Memphis. And uh, I think he's going to make it. So, so we'll find out. He'll be there tonight. Well, backstage at the high school, where we, were, where we were doing this record hop, and Universal was filming it too as a day in the life of a, of a DJ. Uh, in walked Elvis, and he had this entourage with him even then of, of people, you know, and I think Joe Esposito and some of those guys uh, were with him then. And I said, hi Elvis, I'm Pat Boone. He says, please meet you, Moses Moses. He just mumbled something and his head went down. Looking down. Right? Down, yeah. And I said, uh, Bill Randall says he thinks you're gonna be a big star. And he says, well, I don't see mention. He just mumbled something, his head went down again. He leaned back against the wall. And I found it almost impossible to talk with him. He seemed yes, painfully sir. shy and introverted. And I thought, how's this guy going to get in front of this? It's going to be a total disaster when he gets in front of an audience. But Bill, rec uh, Bill uh, introduced him. He went out, he lip-synced, I Got a Woman, and um, Money, Blue honey. Moon of Kentucky, I think. And, and, and the kids... They found him fascinating. He was exciting. They didn't know quite what to make of him. But I knew I was going to have a tough time following him, and I, I did. I had a couple hit records, so I, I got away with it. The only time we were ever on a show together or I followed him. Then later, as we got to be good friends, I said, Elvis, why were you so shy when, when we met that first night in Cleveland? He says, man, don't you know? He says, you were a star. I said, a star? I only had two records. Yeah, but they were on the, they were on the hit parade. You had two hearts. It was top ten. Ain't that a shame? Number one. He says, I didn't know what to say to you. You were a star. So it just shows that perception uh, plays a real big part in our attitudes. I mean, I was as rank and and no more experienced a singer than Elvis. I just happened to have gotten there six months ahead of him. What he did say on a tape which I sent you that. Uh you know, Boone's been around a lot longer than I have because I'd asked the question, who's your favorite? And he said you at the time, in 1957. Yeah. I think he respected you, and uh, it's amazing how much of you came out of the South. And talking about Texas, as you were a moment ago, Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison uh, says that you were the inspiration for him uh, to get into show business. Do you remember any of that? Or was he a kid, you <clears throat> were a kid, you don't remember? Well, he remembers it, or did remember it better than, than I, because in his eyes at that time, I was a star. I'd, I'd had some hit records, was appearing on national television. And I have a vague recollection of hearing about a young boy locally there who was singing, and I encouraged him to keep it up. And I think he sang uh, in a group behind me when I had a big homecoming at North Texas State, where I think he went to school. That's right. And I came back as you know, a homecoming of a star, you know, yeah. at least at North Texas State. And I had two or three hit records to sing, and they put together a group to sing behind me on stage. And so when I heard about Roy and his, the stars in his eyes, you know, and I heard that he did have an unusual voice and maybe a chance, well, of course, like I 
like I've done uh, countless times, I'd you know say, look, you know, hang in there, keep going, and take advantage of every honorable opportunity, and and uh, don't lose hope. I mean, it can be rough, but if you've got it, you know, the break will come. Another thing, uh, Pat, we uh, we were talking about uh, the entertainers. Where today, everyone's a general with hindsight, saying, oh, you know, all of these people were covering, like Georgia Gibbs covered "Dance with Me, Henry," and mm -hmm. and Pat Boone covered. Uh, the black songs and all of that. But Fats Domino, in an interview I had with him, and also Little Richard, uh, have said that without you and people like you putting them out, the black artists never would have happened. And the ones that didn't happen were because they weren't that good. Maybe the songs were good, but the arrangements weren't or whatever because they didn't have the wherewithal. What, what's your reaction to Fats' statement, Little Richard? Well, I'm glad to hear them say that because there'd been some confusion on the part of some historians maybe who weren't there they were just gathering their facts you know later uh, they didn't know that that R&B music was not going to be played on 98 percent of America's radio stations or North America's radio they, it was too raw it just didn't sound right and and uh, to the pop record listeners ears or the DJs and rock and roll started happening and of course R&B was the source of rock and roll, but the records were just a little too raunchy. So that gave the opportunity for artists, not just white artists, because Nat King Cole and other black artists also uh, recorded uh, R&B songs, covered them, cleaned them up a little bit, made them sound more like pop records. Well, commercialized them. Really. Commercialized them. And of course, uh, what the tape you gave me, a little Richardson, man, I was washing dishes in the bus station in Macon, Georgia. Macon, Georgia. I was so glad when uh, when Pat Boone did my song because it meant I was going to get out of that place. <laughs> you know, and it did. It, uh, it, it popularized the songs and the artists. None of us knew at that time that, that there was going to be a growing demand for the original artists and the original records. But that's what happened. I mean, and, and those of us who did the cover records simply served as catalysts for, for what, was, what proved to be inevitable. You went on beyond uh, just doing rock and roll and back to ballads, which I know you love, and uh, you're probably one of the best balladeers of that whole period of time, and you did movies. Was that an exciting time? It seems like uh, the motion picture world was a bunch of travelogues for Elvis Presley. For you, there was a little more to it, in some of them anyway. Well, yeah. In fact, I was reading in USA Today that, uh, that they, they're now considering Journey to the Center of the Earth a cult classic. I don't know what makes a uh, movie a cult classic, but but anyway, they're reviewing it very seriously, and it was. It was a James Mason, James Mason, and Arlene Dahl, and and of course, State Fair became um, a well thought of, very well received film. And I did some others that that had some substance, some meat to them. Um, it, but it was all bewildering to me because I, I didn't study acting or think about making movies till after I'd made a few of them. Right. And I did have one advantage over Elvis in that I did actually go to some acting coaches and get enrolled in classes and just and become a student of acting which Elvis never did he probably felt he couldn't I mean it's hard to imagine Elvis sitting in the third row of an acting class waiting his turn to get up and do an improvisation you know uh, but I it was maybe hard for people to imagine me doing that too but I did because I figured if I'm gonna get paid all this money and I'm gonna maybe make films with Debbie Reynolds and at one point had to turn down a film with Marilyn Monroe, turned it down because really it was immoral. <laughs> and you know me. I know. I just could not do, I, I risked suspension at 20th Century Fox because I said, I can't do this film. It was called uh, um, 
celebration, I think. It was a William Inge play. And Marilyn Monroe was going to do it, and, and she was going to play a, a sort of a just slightly past her prime star. nightclub singer, yeah. star. And I was a young kid with, in love with her, and she was flattered by the attention, and they had an affair, and it ended with him going his way and her going hers. And no harm done, apparently. And I said, I don't believe, I can't do this. But how about the Yellow Canary, which you did? Well, now I played a real heel in that. That's but the right. reason I love doing that was because the, world the heel, yeah, I grew up a little in it. I, I was confronted with the shallowness and the selfishness of my life when my son was kidnapped, and, uh, and I grew up. I, I felt like it had, uh, it had a moral to it. So I, I was always happy to play a bad guy or do some bad things in a film if it had some point, but not if it just sort of glamorized the yeah. immoral things. Did Pat Boone in his entire career ever have a period when you went off the straight and narrow, even if it was for a week or two? Because I've heard stories that you had one time in your life, and we've all had them, where you ran into Vegas and went <laughs> crazy for two, two weeks or something and then came back. Well, no, it was longer than that. <laughs> and, and it wasn't going crazy, but it was, the, it was that well-known <clears throat> pattern of a guy having so much and having it really so soon and wife and kids and, all, and, and great blessings and acceptance and money and all that. But then, you know, keeping a marriage together and, and, and raising a family, those are really tough challenges. And, and if you're on the road and you're getting all the adulation and all the um, opportunities that an entertainer has, um, and it's comparing that to what seems like drudgery maybe at home, it, it is tough to handle. So for a while I didn't, and I've written frankly about it, talked frankly about it. It nearly cost me marriage, family. I mean, easily, so easily uh, could have seen a divorce and a breakup of our home and who knows, maybe another marriage which wouldn't have been successful perhaps. But... Uh, How long were you wild, Pat? Months? Well, not wild, but but <clears throat> but I will say this: I I sold out. I did sell yeah. out, and I did most everything that uh, entertain. I never got involved in drugs, never got drunk, but uh, I was not impervious to the um, to the uh, invitations of of girls, and so it was. I, I guess that went on for s several years, and. You don't hide those things from no. your wife or your kids. Uh, and then when it looked like we, we just weren't going to be able to stay together because there was just nothing holding us together, th that was when, when Shirley had a, a new spiritual experience which uh, changed her. And I saw the change and I realized this, I needed it. And, and this may sound corny, but it's true. I really wanted to give my daughters the kind of father they deserved. And I realized I was, had just about blown the chance. And so I made a new spiritual commitment myself. Our marriage came back together. Then one by one, our daughters said, hey, this is great. Can we get in on this? They did. And then that's what started seven years of singing together. And so I made a new spiritual commitment myself. Our marriage came back together. Then one by one, our daughters said, hey, this is great. Can we get in on this? They did. And then that's what started seven years of singing together as the Pat Boone family, because at that point, I, I didn't care whether it was good for me as a pop singer. 
I wanted to keep my family together, my girls in view. They were pretty teenage girls. Uh, I knew this was a crucial time in their lives, and I wanted to be part of it. So it was fabulous, and out of that came Debbie Boone. And out of that came your new life, and I know your belief in God. And yeah, 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 a revitalization. Well, if it weren't for that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be together. And really, uh, my life would, would, uh, would have become more and more a story of heartache. But you see, I've never asked you that, and I don't think many reporters do. There, that we've all had down periods. I think everybody pictures the white buck shoes and the and the uh, straight and narrow man going down the road, also clean with never a, a deviation. But you've had them too, and I think that's important yeah. for people to know that. Well, that's why we were frank about it, and why I'm not at all hesitant to talk about it, because if people think that you live some kind of a unreal life, then when you try to share with them things that really work and really matter, they say, well, how, what do you know? You've never lived where I live. Right. You've never had the problems I've had. Well, yes, I did. I mean, I drank enough to be drunk. It, I just seemed to be, whether I was healthy or what, I don't know. I only got drunk once, and that was after a movie. It was in the midst of doing a movie scene with Debbie Reynolds and, and Tony Curtis, and I think Vincent Minnelli, the director, I think they all did this on purpose to get me drunk. <laughs> Which movie was that? It was Goodbye, Charlie. And I was playing a naive young boy, very wealthy young boy, about to propose to Debbie Reynolds. And I took her down to our wine cellar, and I kept opening bottles of champagne and pouring champagne. And they had me rehearse this over and over with real champagne. And I drank all afternoon until, you know, like 7 o'clock at night. And when I drove home, I drove home very carefully, and Shirley saw me get out of the car and walk very ultra steadily out of the garage. And she knew right away that I'd had I'd tied one on, but that was only while we were doing the, the movie, the movie scene. Other than that, I, I don't think I was ever drunk, but it wasn't because I didn't drink a lot. No. And I, I took many chances and I really blew it, but um, that's when you discover that there is a grace and there is a, a saving power and, and you can get it back together if you haven't waited too late. I'm glad you told that story. Pat, I was looking up the music of the 20th century. The swing era, for instance, lasted uh, from 1935 to 1945. Did any of us really believe that rock and roll, which really got going about 54, 55, would last all of this time right up to the end of the 80s and into the 90s? <laughs> no, I mean, you remember as well as I that everybody was saying, even most of the artists, this, this is not going to last but a year or two. This is just a quick flash in the pan kind of a thing. And when the Beach Boys came along, when Elvis, when I, when Fats and Little Richard and, and for that matter, uh, Frankie Avalon and Paul Anka and I mean, artist after artist uh, kept coming and, and everybody kept thinking, well, this is just one of those quick things, you zoom up and then fade out and that's the end of that, we'll go on to something else. Everybody predicting the demise of rock and roll year after year after year until finally you say, wait a minute, it's been 20 years and it's not gone away yet, been through many changes. Uh, things like metal and, you know, all the technological changes and uh, psychedelic things and drug things and all sorts of changes. But, um, but it just, I don't know, there's something about the beat and the, and the abandon, although I, I feel that now it doesn't have the, the freedom that it used to have. It's all formula, it seems to me. And people go in and spend two years making a record. We used to spend 15 minutes making a record. I mean, I literally had several number one records that we did in 15 or 20 minutes. First take. Yeah. And they had a, 
they had that freshness to them. They had some kind of spontaneity, had some bad notes too. But then you, you wind up imitating the bad notes for years because, because they were part of the, the appeal. Anything uh, that you would like to be remembered for when our days all come and they come inevitably to all of us, what would you like to be remembered as, Pat, and for in the entertainment field? Well, goodness. It's a tough one. It is, but I don't expect ever to be voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though I played a part and certainly had plenty of big hit records and all, sold lots of records. Um, and even though it has for many years been a negative for me professionally to be thought of as the guy in the white shoes and the guy that cleaned up little Richard's lyrics and, and did some of these things, I, I hope that, that I will be remembered maybe as as a positive influence, because there have been a number of negative ones too. And that's really part of the appeal, I suppose, of rock and roll is that it deals with real nitty-gritty, uh, sometimes down and dirty subjects. Um, but you, at least I always had fun and my fans had fun and we sold 45, 50 million records having a good, clean kind of fun with it. And if I'm going to be remembered at all, you know, for my entertainment career, music career, I hope it'll be that I was at least a positive, good influence in it. Want more legends? Visit me at redrobinson.com.